0: Radio shows you love from the people you know. This is Sam Talks Technology. Hello and good afternoon and welcome again once to Sam Talks Technology. And I've got a special superstar guest with me today. It's uh, Andy from, well, let's find out. Andy McLaughlin, where are you today?
1: Hi Sam, I am sitting in my office um, in the, uh, the SOMA South of Market District of San Francisco.
0: Now that doesn't sound like England at all, but you have got a wonderful English accent still. You haven't lost it.
1: No, no. I mean, I think it's uh, it's kind of a an Englishman's secret weapon over here. You can uh, probably get away with parking tickets and all, all sorts of things. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's it's also. I mean, I, I hear myself talk now, and I know my accent's beginning to soften. A little bit but i am trying to stay true to my roots <laughs>
0: good well look let's uh, tell everyone a little bit more about you you are a, currently a partner at uncourt capital uh you were formerly the co-founder and cto i'm right maybe or product manager at huddle but we'll clarify that when we go through to it a company that was uh based in the uk And in the US and that was sold to private equity Um, and prior to that we'll find out about the rest of your life. So let's start off with what are you up to today you're at UnCourt Capital. What is UnCourt Capital uh, and what do you focus on?
1: Yeah so we are a um, a seed stage venture capital firm um, based in Palo Alto and San Francisco. Um, We invest in um, early stage technology businesses Um, and really that covers everything from hardware, software, Um, B2B, B2C marketplaces. Um, In the past, we've done a lot of stuff in ad tech. Um, So, you know, we would describe ourselves as a um, a conviction driven, generous seed firm. Um, And what we we mean by that is we like to lead or co-lead seed deals. You know, our average check size these days is about a uh, million dollars. And it's kind of mind blowing that these days a a seed round could be up to four or five million dollars. I think when we raised our series A, Back in 2007, that was a three million dollar series A. So this is just kind of <laughs> how the uh, the numbers have increased and the uh, the letters have changed, but you know the uh, there's still still lots of money flushing around.
0: Gosh, yeah four million as a seed round that would have been joyous um but that's again maybe a topic i'd like to cover with you later on which is the difference between the uk vc market and the us market and and and, you know the size and the expectation i guess um so with uncork capital give us a flavor of some of the companies that you guys have invested into recently maybe some that you think are just invested into and some that have exited that you know people might know of
1: yeah, so the, the firm is 15 years old now. We're currently investing out of a um, $100 million fund five. So we've been, we've been in the market for a long time. We've been lucky to have been involved in some terrific businesses along the way. You know, we led the um, seed rounds in Fitbit, in SendGrid, which went public and then was acquired by Twilio, um, in Eventbrite, um, which I'm sure people are familiar with. Um, we have had a bunch of other great exits. Um, including companies like Mint, which was one of the early personal finance companies, uh, Wildfire, which was acquired by Google for many hundreds of millions of dollars um, a few years back. And then we've got some really exciting up and coming companies, um, Postmates and Poshmark, um, both of which are doing phenomenally well. We have um, some kind of newer SaaS businesses like Front and LaunchDarkly. Um, And then to give you a kind of flavor in in terms of what we're investing in today, we, are, um, we recently closed a deal called Coda, which is a software development platform um, based out of Austin, Texas. We, um, we announced recently a company called CrossBeam, which is a tool to, to help um, software companies kind of build strong partnerships and monetize those partnerships. Um, but really what, what we're looking for, and Jeff once said this on stage and it got turned into a, um, a cartoon that sits in our office, is we're looking for three things, um, and at the very early stages, you know, the you just never know kind of what a company is going to end up looking like. But what we're looking for are um, a smart ass team, building a kick ass product in a big ass market. Um, <laughs> and put another way, um, because I, I think you, you also have to kind of think about you know if with with all three of those, which is the most important? And and it really is team. It, you know, team first, vision second, and then size of opportunity third. Um, and one of, our, um, one of our friends out here, I think it was, I forget who, I think it may have been Hunter Walk from Homebrew described their um, their thesis as, we're looking for founders we love, building products we don't hate.
0: Okay, okay. I mean, I like, I like the way that that was. Yeah, it is team first, I fully agree with you. Uh, and you, I guess you have to feel that instant empathy and synergy with the team. Um, you're joining their board if you invest, I guess, and you've got to be working with them a lot. So,
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you're, you're, you're getting kicked off at the beginning of what could be a, a 10-year relationship. So I think, you know, we're looking to invest in people who we want to spend time with people who we um, we want to go on a journey with and people who you know we're excited about partnering with I think you know you you don't ever want to do a deal with someone where you think you know their business better than they do or you feel like you're going to have to step in and run the company I think if that ever happens you have probably made a bad call but what you're looking for are people who um, who are just phenomenal at what they do absolutely world class in the field that they're in um, and where you feel like you can learn a lot from them as well um so
0: you talked about postmates uh, and a couple of the other companies you've recently invested in give us a flavor of you know with postmates what the size of that investment if you can uh, and tell me if you can't Uh, and what it was that you know was it the team again that instantly grabbed you Uh, so just give us a flavor of one of those recent investments how, how it came across
1: yeah, I mean, Postmates, I believe, was done um, by the team back in twenty twelve. So that's that's a reasonably kind of long in the tooth investment at this point um, that we hope is going to have some kind of outcome in the next the next couple of years. Um, I, when I think about some of the the investments we we made recently, we talked about Coda. This is one that we just did at the back end of last year. Um, that was a it was really an excitement about the team. Um, it was a a fascination with the, the product space they were they were working in, um, and it was just one where after taking an initial call with them, I was so excited that I said to my team, "You know, we've got to figure out if this is one that we can do." Um, and what was also a bit of a bizarre thing with this deal was that they had um, sent us a cold email. Now, generally, and I think this is pretty standard, um, people say that you know most great deals come from your network; they come from people referring good people to you, and um, and you know that that's how you first find them but occasionally you'll get a you'll get a cold email because you know not every great entrepreneur can be connected to you um, i forget who it was that said it but you know they uh, a great quote is that um is that talent is is uh, is global but opportunity often isn't and so you kind of have to be open to to kind of seeing you know if this cold email could be great I mean, most aren't, most are complete crap. But this one came in, it said, um, Dear Andy, um, you don't know us, we're three 20-year-old entrepreneurs based out of Austin, Texas. Um, we've been working together for seven years. This is our fourth company together. And immediately, this piqued my interest. Wow. We're working on a, a not very sexy software development tool. We, we know that you like not very, not very sexy software products, <laughs> and, which is completely true. And they'd, you know, they'd done their homework and they'd read, they'd read my blogs and seen what I was into. And they said, we've been using a product called LaunchDarkly, which is another one of my investments for six months now. We absolutely love it. And we wondered who'd be the kind of VC that would fund a business like them. We went to their page. We, uh, we saw that you were their seed investor. And um, we're guessing that this is your email address. Here's our pitch deck. Here's a product video. Let me know if, um, if you want to talk more. So I, I read the deck and I looked at the video and I was just blown away, especially given these, you know, these are 20. You know, these kids yeah. at, at 20 had, had done more than most people will do in their professional lifetimes. And, um, and so I, I got on the phone with them and, um, and was blown away. And I, I, I texted my partner, Jeff, directly afterwards, said, hey, can you talk, talk to these three kids in Austin for me tomorrow? It feels too good to be true. So Jeff got on the phone with them the next day and, and he's like, yeah, definitely too good to be true. Let's have Stephanie, our third partner, meet with them. Steph Steph talked to them. She's like, "Yep, seems too good to be true. You should go to Austin and make sure that this is real." So I hopped on a plane, went down to Austin, met them, met the team, um, and you know, it was just just fantastic. And actually, in some really wonderful, kind of good old-fashioned Southern hospitality, the CEO even drove to the airport to pick me up. Um, most of the team, should. <laughs> well, I, I have no expectation that anyone would do that, you know, we are, you know, we're, we're here to serve businesses, not the other way around. Um, but the fact you did that was was phenomenal. And, you know, I, I went to their office and I had lunch with the founders and their team and most of them had never, never met a VC before, so they wanted to hear about Silicon Valley and kind of how this whole, this whole thing works. Um, and, um, You're like an alien
0: that landed in their world.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so we you know we had a great couple of days together kind of going through the product and the vision of the market, and we uh, we gave them a the term sheet a week or so later um and wow. um, okay. yeah then, really then it's been a, been a phenomenal business and actually one where they raised a um a series a within six months of making that investment which is which is extremely rare
0: okay so that that's that's like a a baby unicorn in the sense that that's rare that you've got a cold call. It's rare that you would you know, do a deal so quick and it's rare that they got an angel. So they sound like a company that, you know, certainly people should be tracking and looking at. don't know what they do totally. I mean, again, we can go through that, but I think people can go and find out for themselves um, yeah. from, from the point of view uh, everything that we see in our industry is always about, you know, the people who make it, the ones on stage at the web or, um, you know, all these big web summits, you know, you know, they wheel out the, the winners, I guess, is what I'd like to say. Um, Have you seen through your investments, you know, company, you don't mention who they are, but have you seen investments that have gone south where you thought that, that was odd I never expected that, or, or have you been lucky so far? And everything's, you know, using the American parlance, struck out the, struck
1: out the, the park, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, any, any investor who says that every single company that they've invested in is a winner is either insanely lucky or lying. Um, you know, the, one of the reasons that you build a a portfolio of investments is with the knowledge that unfortunately, you know, 85 or 90% of companies won't make it and by won't make it, I mean, will return maybe return cash or, or less. Um, and there is what people talk about, the, the power law of venture, which basically states that 5% of your companies will return kind of 85 plus percent of the of the cash to the fund. Um, and, you know, with with kind of fund dynamics, you need, you know, if we have, call it, you know, 40 companies in a fund, you need, you need two or three really big wins to, to make that a good fund. And then everything else is icing on the cake there. But yeah, you know, there will be companies where, you know, w- whenever we invest, we have to believe that this is a... A big opportunity, you know. It's it's a little bit lazy to talk about, you know, billion dollar unicorns. But a billion dollars is a nice round number. Where for most funds, you know, that a billion dollar outcome will return will return the fund for them. And um, you know, you have to believe that every opportunity has the potential to be that big. Um, you have to believe that you know the teams you invest in are the ones that can kind of take it all the way or most of the way. And you have to believe that the um, you know that there's not going to be some other kind of like macro shift that just that just undermines what they're doing but of course right you know we're not we can't see into the future i don't have a crystal ball um and there'll be times where you know things just completely blindside you it could be that you know google launches a competitive product and gives it away for free it could be that there is some kind of massive falling out between the founders and um and it's just kind of irreparable or it might be that um you know, they, they just could, you know, you're, you're investing in a deep technology business and they just couldn't crack the code to, to make it work as well as it needed to. Um, and so, you know, the, that's, just, that's just the game. And I think that, you know, I talk a lot about how, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, it's a roller coaster ride. It's just, you know, ups and downs and ups and downs. And as investors, you know, we live a kind of much more normalized version of that where it's still hopefully up and to the right. And, you know, and there are ups and downs, but they're much flatter than the peaks, and, the peaks and troughs that an entrepreneur will see. Which, you know, on one hand, you're never gonna get the crazy highs, right? You're never gonna get the, holy crap, you know, we've just sold this company for $100 billion and, and you know, everybody's rich for life. But it's also, you know, we don't have to worry about the downside quite so much because if we've done our job and invested in a, a good pool of companies, then, you know, then enough success will kind of make sure that the, the fund performs.
0: Yeah, I mean, people forget that you are taking just as much a risk as the entrepreneur. It's one of the things I used to forget, I have to be honest and say, when I was an entrepreneur looking for VC funding, I forget that the risk is two way, you know, me, me going to them starting a business was risk, as opposed to staying in the safety net of a corporate network. Um, And them investing into me or investing into any startup is their risk because they have to go back to the Pension funds, or wherever they raise their funding from, and say, "Look, you know, last time we took this hundred million fund, we we returned X, or this time we didn't. And can we have some more money, please, to go and do it?" So, yeah, yep
1: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and this is why, you know, when things you know concern sour in the economy, a lot of VC funds will disappear because I think, um, as you say, the you know they go to their their LPs, the limited partners that invest in their fund, and if they haven't been able to kind of return them cash, which beats. Kind of an index, then it's unlikely that after a couple of tries they'll they'll be able to do it again. I mean, I, I do think though that the, the entrepreneurs are certainly taking a lot more risk than VCs because you know you have all of your eggs in in one basket. But um, but certainly you know it, 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 being a venture investor is not for the faint of heart, and it's not for for people who don't enjoy some risk I mean I think it's certainly a calculated risk and it's one where you know hopefully you have some kind of deep knowledge around the sectors you're investing into so you're not just doing it blindly but it's um it, yeah it's, it's I think you know as I said you know I, th- I feel like we in this industry are here to to serve the entrepreneurs that we invest in and do everything we can do to make them successful it, it's them that's really doing the hard work and you know and, and putting out putting out the most risk.
0: So roughly I mean do you have a set number of investments that you think you as a partner or as a company will invest into? Or is it, you know, um, we have at the beginning of the fund a clean slate and it's just how many companies we think we can do. I mean, is it, you know, is it, is it a clear, right, I think given the resources we have, we will invest in 10 companies because you've got to be on the boards of those companies as well. So it's fundamentally resourcing someone to be on the board which I assume is a partner often
1: that yeah that, that, that's certainly part of it and there's a few different a few different things to think about as you as as we think about the the number of companies in a particular fund it's the you know how much ownership in each company do we want to buy um, it's how big a check do we want to write it's how much do we um do we want to reserve for follow on investments so if we invest at the seed round we want to be able to maintain our ownership at the series A and B and and potentially beyond. It's also, um, you know, how much personal time you have, you know, when you have a lot of board commitments and you have other commitments, you can't keep loading yourself up with new deals because again, if you're there to serve the business, if you don't have time to serve them, then you're just not doing, you're not doing your job and you're doing the entrepreneur a disservice. Um, so, you know, what we, what we, what we aim for is, um, is to do each partner four or five deals per year. Um, so, you know, one ish per quarter and there'll be some quarters where you don't do any and there'll be some quarters where you might do two or three, depending on what, what lands on your plate. Um, the thing that I, I learned in the time that I've been doing this is that, you know, you never know what's around the corner. And when you're assessing a deal, I think you have to feel you have to feel like you really love it. Is this is this a company and a team that I'm really excited about spending my next kind of 10 years being deeply involved with? Because if it's not, then then you shouldn't do it. But if, you know, if there's any concern there. If you tie yourself up with doing a deal, you may not then have the bandwidth to do something that could fall into your lap next week, and who knows what's what's coming around the corner. And I think that um, you know the investors in our funds, and the, you know the and, and the kind of the general LP base would say that um, you know they would far prefer you to be conservative in your pace and in investing than than aggressive. Um, I think you know when you get aggressive, you can get sloppy, and you can end up kind of making making mistakes and um, and just getting getting carried away
0: so um you said it there it was actually going to be my next question which is have you uh missed out on deals that uh for two reasons one you know you just didn't see it on your radar and another vcs picked up on it you are gone, how did we miss that or or two you know it's a great deal but actually or it's a great company but we can't do this deal because we fundamentally are full you know, you know we have to close the shop and and sorry guys but going to have to knock on someone else's door have you ever had yeah. that
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you if you don't have you know what what we call the uh, the anti portfolio of companies that you've missed, um, then you know then you're probably not working hard enough and kind of seeing enough companies. The I think there's, there's two things. I think there there are the businesses that you don't see, and, and you simply can't you can't see every company that comes along. You know, there are I would imagine at any given moment in Silicon Valley. And this counts, you know, for companies who are based in New York who are coming here or companies from the UK who are coming here or Europe or wherever else, there must be thousands of businesses fundraising at any one point. And so, you know, you simply can't see all of them. So I think what you have to do is try and become quite focused on the areas that you want to invest in. And that could, those could be geographic areas or stage areas or business model areas. And even then, I still don't think you can see it all. And I think if there's something that you, um, you should have seen but didn't and it goes on to be really successful you have to ask yourself why and then I think then I think there's the second ones where you saw a business and you said no um and I think those are ones where you can actually spend a little bit more time kind of being introspective and kind of thinking about why did I why did we say no to this and was it a good reason because I think if you say no to a company you had a perfectly valid reason at the time you can look back on it five years later and say "I, I still think that was a perfectly valid reason that's that's fine right you know you can't you can't be right every single time. But I think it's when you look back at something, you say, actually, that was a really crappy reason for saying no. You know, that's what you have to learn from. And, you know, Jeff Jeff has been doing this much, much, much longer than I have. And, you know, Jeff has the, um, you know, the weight on his shoulders of having said no to, you know, some really stellar businesses. You know, he said no to Airbnb because the business that they had at the time when they were pitching for their seed round was... Very, very different and not very exciting. You know, Jeff wasn't alone. I think they pitched 40 different seed firms and 39 said, said no, Jeff said no to Uber, because at the time, you know, um, uh, Travis wasn't running it. It was being run by by someone else who they drafted in and that, you know, would be a red flag for most for most investors. Um, And um, And he also said no to Twilio, which is the one that he kicks himself the most over, um, because he did not have a good reason for saying no to that. He quibbled on price and not even a great deal of price delta. I think they, they wanted to raise a, a $3.5 million pre-money valuation, and Jeff offered them three and they said, well, no, everybody else is coming in at 3.5. If we've got 500k for you. It's yours if you want it. And Jeff's like, yeah, no. And um, you know that, and I'm sure that 500k now would probably be worth several hundred millions of dollars. So such is life. Um, but you can't yeah. you can't beat yourself up about that because the um, you know you have to focus on the things that you've that you've done versus the things that you haven't. Um, and, and also you just have no idea. It takes a long time to tell which companies are actually going to become breakouts. You know there could be companies who burn really hot at the beginning and then just burn out. And there, can't, there could be companies where it just doesn't look like they're doing very much. And then all of a sudden they're doing the best part of a hundred million dollars in revenue. And it was like, oh, wow, that's actually, that's actually really working, but it often takes five or six years from the time they take seed investment to be, for it to be clear that this is something which is, which is really working.
0: Okay, uh, last couple of questions on VCs and then we'll, we'll move on. One, one is um, whenever I've uh, either gone to get uh, funding myself or been asked by others to help, um, often the answer is 30% what was the question so you know in terms of the stake that you take into a company um you know it seems to have been a rule maybe that's changed and, and maybe you can tell us how you determine the percentage of the stake that you take in a company because I've often gone by that 30% rule, like you know whether the company's worth 1 million pre-value or you know whatever I've yep. always gone by the way guys whatever you're going to do they're going to ask for 30% so just Brace yourself for it and go in there. What
1: do yeah, you say? I mean, I, I, mean I, I think that that's a reasonably good rule of thumb. I actually think 30s may be a little bit expensive. Um, most Series A investors out here, at least, are kind of targeting 20-ish. But when we invest, and, you know, we're, we're coming in at the kind of stage prior to that. And one of the things that I like about seed stage investing is that it's still pretty collaborative. And by that, I mean that if a company is going out to raise $3 million, it's very rare that one firm will put in that whole $3 million. There might be a couple of firms that put in 1.3 or 1.4, and then there's a little bit left for angels and kind of other value-add investors. But what that means is you have a couple of smart people around the table versus just just one investor. And you know, for that, you know, the company will often sell, you know, call it 20-ish, 20-ish percent. And the, the way that we think about this is not only – Um, from kind of running the math on our fund, which is, you know, how much of a company do we need to own when, you know, when kind of terminal ownership, when they IPO or get sold is going to bring in enough cash to return our fund, but it's also kind of trying to be thoughtful around what's what's the right amount of dilution for the founders so that by the time they've raised a seed round and a series A round and a series B round and a series C round, they're not left with just kind of one percent of the company because if they're going to be selling 20 or 30 percent with each round all of a sudden you know that can really kind of bite into what a what a founder has and, you know there are mechanics to top people up and give them giving them more back but it's also i think you know you can by being thoughtful at the very beginning you can make sure that you're you're not hamstringing them and the reason that we care about this is that um you know by the time a, a founder has been working on something for five or six years if they have only one percent of a company they're probably you know, unless it's a complete rocket ship, they're probably not that motivated to keep yeah. going versus selling early or just handing the reins to somebody else and going to start something new. Whereas if, you know, if you're excited about the founders that you're backing, you think they should be the people who are running something, don't, you know, really you want them to, to stay as involved for as long as possible, which means kind of having both the, you know, kind of base salary, but also the equity upside so that they can, you know, they can make what, you know, you think about being a life changing amount of cash when the company finally exits.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there was a phase, and I don't know if it's still true, where at Series A, uh, entrepreneurs were being given a, a, you know, a golden handshake or a golden, golden thank you, whatever you want to call it, to sort of ease those years of burden that they've gone through of no, no income or little income, um, so that they they, they can relax about worrying about the money side of the business or living um, and focus back on the business. I think WeWork's CEO took 700 million out just pre-IPO.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that's, a, that's a, a bit of a rare case, but it, it's reasonably common for people to take a little bit of money out. And you know, certainly not 700 million. Yeah, no, I don't think
0: everyone's taking 700 <laughs> no, million out No, I wasn't suggesting that, no. But, but I think, but, I
1: think it's, it's fairly common for somebody, you know, their Series B or Series C to maybe, maybe take out a million dollars or so. And, you know, that allows them to potentially buy a house or, you know, pay off their debt or, you know, at least kind of have a cash cushion so they're not worrying about money because you know when you're running a high growth business you have a trillion things to worry about but can you pay the bills shouldn't be one of them
0: yeah absolutely i fully agree Uh, i think entrepreneurs take enough risk in the beginning coming up with the idea trying to raise it i always say that the uh, the patron saint of uh entrepreneur should be the little red hen um (laughs) Who, who plants her seeds and no one helps. And then she eventually grows them, harvests them, crops them. And then when she's got the nice warm bread, everyone's jumping on board, ready to eat happily with her. So That's right. <laughs> I, no, I certainly say little red hen is the patron saint of entrepreneurs. Anyway, look, um, how long have you been uh, a VC? Because prior to that, you started your own startup. So before we go into huddle, just last question, how long have you been a VC? I don't think we covered that.
1: Yeah, so I, I joined the firm here in April 2016. So, you know, four and a bit years at this point. Um, and what what I've heard said, which I completely agree with, is in, uh, you know, years one to three, you have no idea what's going on because, you know, regardless of whether you've come from an operational background or a finance background, as soon as you land in BC, you just realize there are you know, an infinite number of ways which kind of later stage investors might try and screw you, an infinite number of ways in which um, the legals can tie you a knot, so an infinite number of ways that companies can go belly up or, you know, do, do well, you know, and sometimes just completely surprisingly, maybe between like years three and six, like, you know what, I've got this, I know what's going on, I feel like, you know, I have my hands on the wheel, and then from year six onwards, you come back to realizing that you know nothing at all, <laughs> and the, um, the analogy that I love is that, you know, working in venture, is a little bit like being in line for a ride at Disney World where you know you're in line and every time you think you you're basically about to get onto the ride you turn a corner and you see the the line goes out for even further ahead of you and it's kind of like that every time you think you've maybe got a grasp on how this this might work you learn that there's just a trillion more things that you need to know.
0: Yeah I, I, I use the analogy peeling an onion you, you, you think you're at the core but you never quite get there exactly yeah um okay look let, let, let's uh, there's a million questions that are going to be related to what you did with huddle and and, and and that i've got in my head but before we get there let's start to talk about huddle what was huddle the company you founded so for those who don't know what was huddle and when did you found it and what was the inspiration behind it the idea
1: yeah. So my, the the job I had prior to Huddle was I was a, a product manager for a um, a small business in 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 the UK in London who were selling um, web based um, but server hosted kind of internally hosted. Um, documents and content and workflow management tools to enterprises. So we did a lot of work in insurance and finance. So I was spending time in London, did some work in New York, did some, some work in Germany, did some work in Bermuda where there was um, you know, a big, big kind of reinsurance market. And what I saw was with each of these people were using this for their internal filing workflow compliance, but they all had a request, which was like, wouldn't it be great if we could open these tools up um, and work with our partners, which, you know, given that these were all installed behind the firewall, just couldn't happen. And so that got me thinking about um, about that. And then I, probably in 2005, I came across Basecamp for the first time, which was this incredibly lightweight project management tool. It didn't do very much, but what it did do, it did beautifully. Um, and it had this kind of rabid following of people that just were, you know, were utterly reliant on it to run their businesses. And so the idea that I had was, could we take the the power and control and kind of enterprise readiness of, this, of these kind of big document management systems I've been working with and kind of deliver them as a service um, hosted in the cloud, even though people weren't really using the word cloud at the time, they weren't certainly weren't using SaaS. But I think they, the first descriptor that somebody used for what we're doing was an ASP, an application service provider. Oh, really good, that
0: Microsoft term, yes. Yeah.
1: Um, and, uh, and, and, and be able to kind of buy it as in you know, pay as you go and buy as you needed. So kind of flex up and down. And so we, um, my co-founder was a guy named Alistair Mitchell, who, um, he was the, you kind know, of the, the sales and operations person. I was a product and technology person, and we came together to, um, to build this company. And this was, you know, London, 2006. So I, I think I left my job at the end of November, 2006, I think Alistair left his, at the, um, at the end of December so kind of early 2007 we were cracking on with this and you know having fun kind of running a company in London and what we realized you know looking back now was that we really didn't have a clue what we were doing because you know at the time I don't think there were really any other big SaaS b2b companies operating in the UK Um, certainly kind of not in this kind of collaboration space Um, you know Box had just gotten started about a year ahead of us in, in the US, and Dropbox had just been founded around the same time. Um, but you know, the, uh, some of the things that people take for granted now that make, and I sound really curmudgeonly when I talk about this, but some of the things that people take for granted now around kind of delivering software just didn't exist, so AWS did not exist. We, you know, we were building Huddle on bare metal in a, in a London Docklands data center. And you know, when you talk about kind of elasticity and being able to scale up your your compute, we had to get on the phone with them, and it would take them two weeks or so to provision a new server and get it and get it online. So you know, capacity planning was kind of difficult. Um, we didn't. Um, we had to manage our own online payments, online payments gateway ourselves because Stripe didn't exist, and so we had to build this really kind of hokey version of Stripe ourselves to to manage the payments and now of course all you do is you you know use their api and, and off you go um, and um, you know we were dealing with browsers that were you know massively incompatible with each other so that so the front end we'd built had to work between not only kind of relatively new browsers but given we did a lot of work with kind of government inter- and enterprise who had these lockdown environments it had to support internet explorer six which was just a complete, oh, God. A complete nightmare um, <laughs> And so, you know, and I, I look back now and I'm, you know, phenomenally proud of what, what we did, because, you know, there was, you know, the lean startup hadn't been written, there was no guidance to kind of what running a startup meant. So we basically had to make all of these mistakes ourselves along the way. And I think, you know, thankfully, we probably made more good decisions than bad decisions as we went. But that's not to say we didn't make a lot of bad decisions because we, we did. We made dozens hundreds thousands of bad decisions almost every week um but you know it was a it was a phenomenal learning experience and that business um started off with you know i was in the the bedroom of kind of a miserable one one bed one bed flat in balham and alistair had a slightly nicer two-bed flat in Wandsworth town and we worked out of our business sales that's why yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> we um we then got an office uh, not far from southwark bridge um in a Depressing little co-working space, and again, this is pre work when all co-working spaces made you want to kill yourself. Um, then we got a um, we got an office. This was the come at the famous Huddle office on Bermondsey Street with the blue gates um, in uh, in an old um, an old factory, which was super cool. Then we had a, a larger office on Silicon Roundabout and Transworld House. So this is the uh, the building that's housed many famous businesses. So we were in there, Moo was in there, Last FM was in there, TweetDeck was in there. Um,
0: yeah, I think Alicia Navarro might have been in there as well.
1: Uh, Skimlinks was in there, um, Alex Hoyer's agency was in there. Um, so yeah, it, it was great. You'd walk up and down the stairs in this building just bump into people that you knew. Um, and uh, I think for the last, probably five or six years huddles being kind of around the old gate area and is now in, the, in this kind of beautiful old gate tower one floor up from from uber um and the business you know we raised 80 ish million dollars of venture capital we did the first round in the uk in uh late 2007 with eden ventures we did our series b with matrix partners which is a um a u.s um Investor, we did our Series C with um, Icon Ventures, which is another kind of Silicon Valley VC, and then we did our Series D with a, a late-stage European firm. And you know, all along the way, you know, we we were kind of along for the ride and just kind of see how far we could take it until you know one day, like, oh wow, we have you know 200 people in the company and it's doing you know tens of millions of dollars in revenue. This is actually a a real thing. Um, I look back to you know sitting in the slug and lettuce. In, um, in Clapham Junction with Alistair trying to figure out how the hell we were gonna pay ourselves and, and make it happen. And um, you know, back in 2007, it, it was a, a really a really phenomenal journey. And um, what, what's, what's also great is you know, not building the company was great. And I think having the, that experience, but the people you get to spend time with, the people you get to meet. And I was just in London last weekend for a, a wedding of, uh, of two people who had actually met working at, at Huddle um five or, five or six years ago so there were a bunch of of there um it was a really a really phenomenal phenomenal day out and i think the fact that the you know the business was such a big part of their story was very touching
0: that's brilliant oh i love that um so you and i met though what in 2000 we were trying to work this out 2000
1: 2007 um at one of the first open coffee meetups um
0: those wonderful things yes
1: and um and you know what's funny is i think about the people that i met that same day um and these are people that i still see on a pretty regular basis out here there is a a guy called imad akund who um had a a company called RevMap, which was like an early yelp type site and he then he worked on something else and then he went to started a company called Hayzap with Jude Gamilla that was in one of the early YC batches. They sold that company a couple of years ago and now he's working on a, a business called Mercury which is a, a B2B bank funded by Andreessen Horowitz. Um,
0: wow, okay, that's a nice investment.
1: I met Sumon Sadhu who, um, who was oh, yes. involved in Seedcamp and, and then was at Quid and is now doing, doing his own thing out here and, and actually one of the, one of the things that, that is nice about being in San Francisco is there's a lot of Brits out here so you know if you ever get tired tired of kind of the um american kind of competitive high-fiving and you know like like positive enthusiasm all the time you can go and you know it's relatively (laughs) you've got to find some brits and get get kind of grumpy about stuff and do sarcasm yeah exactly yeah
0: so yeah so uh i do remember so we met at that open coffee and um we had a, a chat after And I I just have to tell a story, I think we were telling it before we started recording. Um, I was a few years later um, at an event where Alistair was presenting, um, and he kindly had got a quote from me, which I wasn't expecting, which was, I think I told you guys to go big or go home.
1: Yeah, that's
0: right. And... uh,
1: we did, and we, we 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 tried to go big, and we um, and actually one of the funny things was like Alistair would, would say go big or go home on, on repeat over the next eight, <laughs> eight years that, that became his mantra. And I think what we were what we realised, you know, I first came out to the, we came out to the US in late 2007 early 2008 um, for a conference, and to come from London where you know you're building a little company and you know you're you know reasonably sheltered from the rest of the world, and then to come out here and to see what companies at the time like Jive and Box and EMC and kind of be just kind of thrown into that, into that maelstrom. It really kind of made us think about upping our game. Um, and I think what we realised was that you know if we were going to try and build a you know a big important company, you know we you know we, where you know we'd have big important clients, we would probably have to think about coming out to Silicon Valley. And so after we raised the money from Matrix Partners, that's when um, they said they wanted one of the founders to move out here to kind of form the the nucleus of the of the U.S. team um, and so I came out in early-ish 2010 um, and I was supposed to be be here for a year and then I go back and continue to run product in London but of course you know that was early 2010 it's now 2019 and I've been in America for nine years.
0: And think if I'm right you're now an American citizen as well.
1: I am not, no. I, so I'm a green card. Oh, I'm, I'm actually kind of going, okay. through, going through the naturalization process right now. Um, and that's really mainly actually so that I, um, I can leave at some point. Um, I, I love the idea of coming back to, to retire here. But, you know, if in you know, 10 years, 15 years, we want to go and spend five years in London and have the girls be educated there for a while. You
0: mean without an American accent is what you're trying to say.
1: Well, you know, opening their eyes to a, uh, to a bigger <laughs> world. Um, having a citizenship means that I can come and go as I please. Whereas with the yeah. green card, if you leave for more than kind of two years, then you ultimately have to give it up.
0: Okay. Now, putting your VC hat on and your entrepreneur hat on, looking back with hindsight, because everything's obvious in hindsight. Um, as Huddle, what would you have done differently going into your first seed round or Series A? You know, now that you can see. The other side, you're now you're now gamekeeper turned poacher, or poacher turned gamekeeper. <laughs> um, what what would you have advised the young Andy, you know, uh, back then that he should have done differently, if anything? Maybe maybe he did everything right. I don't know.
1: Oh okay. i certainly didn't do everything right. I think the, the two the two things that that really pop out. The first one is that um, we shouldn't have been so focused on revenue in the very very early days. I think we we probably spent too much time chasing dollars or chasing pounds as it was. And, you know, we did a bunch of work which was kind of probably too custom on the platform for specific clients versus just kind of thinking about, you know, building a, a big scalable generic platform. Um, and what that meant was that, you know, engineering time got sucked up. It meant that customer success time got sucked up. It thought meant that product time was sucked up and sales time when, you know, when really we should have been, you know, you take the funding on to give you a bit of, um, a bit of time to build core product before needing to go and chase sales. I think, and I think the second thing was we, um, and maybe this is a, this is kind of a, a result of that was that you know, we probably didn't invest enough in the early days in core engineering resource um because you know when you've got a, a finite number of pounds in the bank and you know you need to satisfy a client often the best thing you can do is throw people at it and so you know a big a big learning there was that you know throwing people at the problem doesn't make the problem go away it actually probably makes the problem worse and so you know had we been a little bit more thoughtful about you know tripling our investment in, in engineering versus kind of growing it linearly i think we probably would have ended up with a, a more stable platform and kind of product base which would have meant that we would have had to spend less money on people in the long term
0: right um and in terms of is that because and again this is what i'd like to understand the difference between a uk vc and a us vc now i've never been <laughs> lucky enough to raise money in the us i never even tried so you know i don't have that experience but You know, one of the things that I do know about UK VCs, it's always that short-termism. It's always that desire to get to revenue before they really get to Series A even. You know, it's like, show me the money is literally their shout. And is that why, now that you've worked on both sides of the pond, uh, we don't get the likes of Twitters and Facebooks because we don't give them the long enough runway to grow the business without first having to hit profitability or revenue?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the UK has always done really well um, investing in companies that generate cash. So, you know, traditionally that was e-commerce, it was gaming, um, it was um, kind of paid mobile services. I think the the UK, had, you know, we've never had a, a Google or a Facebook or a Twitter, so there hasn't been the kind of muscle memory of what a company like that looks like in its very early stages. Um, and you know, the, and the U.S. the U.S. has, and you know, the, the U.S. has gotten very good at, at kind of finding those and nurturing those. Um, I do think that the you know the the U.K. ecosystem, when we first raised money, you know, 15 years ago or whatever whatever the, the crazy number is, is very different to what what it looks like today. And I think there has been a real kind of maturing. Of the space and a kind of understanding that you know you need to be able to allow companies to to get the the base in place before you can kind of chase revenue. I do think that this probably it's probably still not as um, as mature as the US on that front, but it's kind of night and day from what it was like. And you know our our Series A investors at Eden were incredibly supportive and you know really terrific people. But you know this was the kind of first time they they built a a business like this, and you know the the understanding of the standard form for them was that you, you, know, you go and you acquire customers and you serve those customers and you get revenue from them. Whereas I think now we'd all look back and say, hey, I wish we'd waited for a year and spent more time building out the platform before before going after, going after the customers.
0: So Okay, so uh, let's fast forward a little bit now. So you're in the US. Uh, it's a new territory for you, you're growing the company. Um, and suddenly... Yeah, you know, you, you, you're coming out of it. The company's decided to move. You've decided to move on, or the company decided to move on. How did you get into angel investing? I mean, I guess two parts to that question. First and foremost, it's just a question that pops in my head. Having been so close as a founder, what did it feel like to leave Huddle? And was your first instinct therefore just right? I'm leaving, and I'm I'm going to be an angel investor. Or did you think no? I'm leaving, and I'm going to be an entrepreneur again. I'm going to have another idea.
1: So actually, what had happened was I was I was angel investing during my time at, at Huddle. Um, what had happened was that when we raised the the Series B, we did a very a very small amount of secondary, you know, hundred thousand dollars or so, hundred thousand pounds, and and um, I you know used that money to pay off credit cards. Um, and the rest I was like, well, I'm, a, you know, a single person living in a relatively cheap apartment, so I don't have any family or crazy costs. Wouldn't it be fun to invest some of this money in other entrepreneurs? And the first one happened completely by accident. And I think, you know, we talked about this at the beginning where, um, you know, I, I'm an accidental VC. I was kind of an accidental entrepreneur and certainly I was an accidental angel investor. And what had happened was there was a, a guy, a friend of mine from London was living at my place um he'd moved out a few months after me and he was setting up a a business and it was a social media curation product um and he needed a bit of money to get up and running and you know i offered to lend it him he said well rather than lend why don't you invest and so i invested in this company that after a couple of twists and turns turned from being a, a social media company into becoming a, a business called postmates which is now mm. one of the um the largest food delivery networks in in the us and that guy was bastian Lehman who you know, to, the, to this day is a, a very close friend and actually was the officiant our wedding when we got married which was oh, okay. um and um you know what i realized from working you know investing in him and working with him um and his co-founders was that you know at that point huddle was kind of on a you know a, a pretty kind of set path you know growth was good it was getting kind of much more mechanical and being able to help these entrepreneurs at the very beginning help them think about hiring and go to market and you know basing themselves in san francisco and immigration and visas and setup all the stuff that we learned along the way kind of through you know just kind of trial and error you could help people you know save days or months or weeks by by just kind of pointing them in the right direction and and what i realized was i just got a ton of utility out of that i really enjoyed it so it became it became my my hobby so i was i'd work at huddle in the day and i would do angel stuff at night and i think in that first few months i invested in postmates i invested in secret escapes i invested in a company called wasoku which is in the uk which is a former huddle person i invested in intercom i invested in uh, pipe drive who are who were um out in san francisco and are now new york and, and estonia um and uh and what i realized was that you know it that this was i mean who know if you're ever going to make money on it i mean thankfully i think i think i will because the you know these are phenomenal businesses they're going to be you know hopefully multi-billion dollar outcomes but um just the the pleasure that i got from working with the founders made it made it totally worthwhile
0: and how did you find them you know obviously you said there's one was X huddle um uh, a couple of people that you met at open coffee yada yada but i mean how do how do you go around finding stuff do you do you have the time i guess to go to the equivalent of what would be open coffee meetings over in the US, you know, or, or networking. How do, how do you find stuff now?
1: So these days now, it's, it's a little bit different. You know, we have, um, you know, we have such a strong network, that stuff comes to us. But in the early days when I was angel investing, um, it was, you know, people who I knew or people who were referred to me. Um, I think on the, on the consumer businesses that I've invested in, such as Postmates and Calm and Thread, and um, Secret Escape, these were where I, I knew the founders, and I just, you know, I liked them, I wanted to support them, and, you know, they've gone on to do great things. With the, the B2B businesses, these were more where I understood the business model, I understood the need, I'd met the founders, I met Owen McCabe, who was the founder of Intercom, at a party one night, and he was pitching me on what they were building, he was like, that sounds great, we'd use that at Huddle, let's meet and talk more about it, and we met up in an Irish pub a couple of days later, and, and I invested. Um, Drive was, um, I used to share an office in San Francisco with my friend Stephanie Robesky. She'd worked at Skype for a long time. A couple of the, um, the drive founders were ex Skype and she's like, hey, these kooky Estonians are coming to town. They're building a, an SMB CRM product. Um, you know, they're looking for engine investors. Would you like to meet them? And my initial reaction was like, yuck, SMB crm that sounds horrible. <laughs> I'll, I'm probably fine. She's like, one of the founders, his name is Ragnar Sass. So I'm like, well, okay, if there's a guy whose name is Ragnar Sass building a SaaS company, I've got to meet them. And so I met with them, totally loved it, and, um, and invested in, you know, the early metrics that they had, even though they probably had 1,000 a a thousand customers at the time, were were truly phenomenal. You know, and, this is, and they've just gone on to, and you know, just do insanely well, and like tens or hundreds of thousands of businesses that use them use them globally now. Um, and then you know, there were other Brits that I met. There were people who, um, who came as introductions. And I think when, when you build a, begin to build a reputation for yourself as a, a high-quality, helpful British founder in Silicon Valley who can angel invest, but can also help with some of the the kind of nuts and bolts pieces of being out here, all of a sudden, you get to see a lot of stuff. Um, right. And maybe this was kind of you know, back in the day when angel investing wasn't as sexy as it is now, and there weren't so many people doing it. And so, you know, I got to, I just got to see a bunch of really, really cool businesses.
0: Nice. Now, um, last question on the investing side for me. Do you ever invest into UK companies and, and, you know, or do companies, if they want to get funding out of Uncorked or out of Andy, um, do they have to move to the
1: Valley? Yeah, so, you know, our, our remit is mainly to invest in in US businesses. And I think what we've seen, though, over the last two or three years, maybe longer, is that um, I think the, the traditional Silicon Valley company is dead. Um, it's now insanely hard to build a business purely in the San Francisco Bay Area in Silicon Valley. You know, the, the fact that the, you know, the going rate for a graduate software engineer it's about $200,000. It's just mind boggling. Um, so, you know, even if you raise two or $3 million, that don't go, that doesn't go very far. Um, and so most of the companies that we invest in tend to have a, a secondary center elsewhere. And we love investing in immigrants and children of immigrants. We just find that the, the drive and the resourcefulness and the grit is, um, is phenomenal, um, you know, because often they know that if they screw up, they have to go home. And when you've come out to, to the Bay Area and you're surrounded by nature and sunshine, you know, you don't want to go home. You know, you're building your life here. And so you know people will kind of literally move mountains to to kind of make their make their thing successful. Um, but what that also means is that often if there's a, a team of co-founders, you know, the CEO, the commercial person might move out here, but they can keep their software and engineering and product and GNA and ops and whatever else. In another country, so you know, we have teams who have um, their secondary centres in Dublin, in um, in Cambridge in the UK, in France, in Germany, in Israel, in Slovenia, in Serbia in Belarus, um, you know, where the cost of, of of hiring people and then the, I think also that, but also the longevity of people, you know, the, the length of time they stay in, in a job is just way, way, way better than, than doing it out here. Because, um, you know, I think between now the, you know, the companies, the, the Googles and Amazons and Ubers and Facebooks who are just snapping up talent, you know, unless you have tens or hundreds of millions of dollars at your disposal, it's really, really expensive. Um, And so, you know, we, we, you know, we love, you know, I love British founders. Um, You know, I, I am one, I was one. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, the UK produces, you know, incredible entrepreneurs. Um, And I think, you know, if they want to, if they want to come out here and and raise money, all they have to do is get on the plane. Um, I think, you know, the, what we tend to look for are, are businesses that are very much focused on the US market to begin with you know, that's where we know we can be helpful, be helpful with customer introductions and helpful with kind of network and partnerships. But, you know, where the rest of the team is based is really, is really up to them. Um, And, you know, I I look at companies like Intercom and Pipedrive who have kind of run this model phenomenally well. And, um, you know, it really, it really can work. It's hard work, but it can work. Um, And so I think to any founder who's thinking about raising money in Silicon Valley, you know, come out here and start, start networking with, with people from the outside. It looks like a, a really big, impenetrable ecosystem, but it's really not. It's um, it's it's genuinely friendly. You know, people want to help each other. They want to make introductions and kind of pay things forward, especially if they've had some success themselves. And you know, and and if and if you don't have that network, then you know why not apply to one of the accelerators like Y Combinator or AngelPad or 500 Startups or Techstars and kind of use that as the the launchpad to, to being out here
0: okay so let's, let's look up <clears throat> to the last part of this interview um the future i guess um a couple of questions around that um the far east china india africa um you know certainly india and uh, the far east seem to be hotbeds of young startups or even if they're not uh, there's a lot of them like flipkart that are just basically replicated models of western businesses but in their own territories and have grown massive you know wechat and alibaba do you uncork look to go further abroad now are you guys looking to form uh, you know parts partners over there and and, and say yeah we're going to put our money over there or or is it just too far away and you're not bothered america's big enough
1: I I think it's too far away. I mean, I think that, you know, we have a small team. We're only, you know, three investing partners and and three support staff. So we, you know, we just don't have the resources to to do that. And I think that if you're going to be, if you're going to try and be a great investor, you have to be great at what you're good at. And, you know, to use a a Britishism, I feel like we need to stick to our knitting a little bit. Um, (laughs) You know, there is so much opportunity in the U.S. and in Western Europe. And I think we're comfortable with, with Western Europe as another territory. Um, especially if they're going to be focused on, on selling in the, in the U S that um, I think it would just be a stretch too far now, you know, never say never. And, you know, perhaps an amazing deal lands on our, on our plate, which kind of gives us the, the first taste of doing business out there. But I think for now, you know, there's, there's just so much to be done in, in North America that, you know, we'll, you know, we're, we're really kind of looking, looking here.
0: Okay. Now I guess VCs get what I call buzzword bingo. Um, uh you know pictures yep. that come to you with ai chatbot, iot uber uh, for X. yeah yeah all of that i mean you know do you just roll your eyes or do you just have a little private conversation game in the background you know if i was in your place i would i'd little i'd have a little chart sat there behind <laughs> my laptop okay yeah they're gonna say it go on say it say ai go on do it i mean
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think, I think what you have to get really good at is just kind of cutting through the BS and kind of cutting through the noise and people talk about AI all the time. And most companies, you know, they're not using any AI whatsoever. They're probably using just a, a nice algorithm, you know, there's no, exactly. there's no real, there's no really machine intelligence there. And that's fine. you know, not, not every business needs to have an AI angle. And I think that, you know, part of this is a you know, trying to educate founders that they don't need to throw out the the next, you know, hot term in order to get investment. You know, there are lots of phenomenal businesses that, you know, are not sexy and don't have AI or blockchain or IoT, um, and that, you know, all you do is you, is, you know, you risk making yourself look like you don't know what you're talking about if you if you put those in into the pitch. Um, and frankly, you know, if I see something that talks, you know, if if I ever see the words AI and blockchain in the same pitch, that's an immediate pass because right. that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever.
0: Yeah, it's just taking, smashing two technologies and seeing if you can come up with a third. It yep, doesn't work, yep. I agree. And I think um,
1: as well, like, you know, especially, especially with blockchain, I mean, thankfully this has calmed down a little bit, but it felt like maybe a year or two ago, people would just add blockchain into their business model because they thought it might make people pay, might, might pay attention. But again, like AI, you don't need blockchain. I mean, blockchain makes no sense in most circumstances. Where it makes sense, it makes a ton of sense, but in most places, it's a nonsense.
0: Yeah, I agree with that fully. Okay, so. The future for Andy. Um, Hopefully, fingers crossed, in the next two days, you're going to be a new daddy. I mean, you're you're a daddy already, so congratulations and good luck with that. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So there goes any more sleepless nights. um, But going forward, you know, will you ever come home? Do you consider the UK still home or is now home really the US?
1: yeah you know it, it so i was in london last weekend and it certainly still does feel like home but i think the you know the longer i've been away the more the you know the bay area feels like home home um you know my family are here you know our home is here um but you know we you know i i'm, I'm british and i will always be british I, lo- I love going back and you know i I could see a i could see a future where at some point you know we we talked about this earlier you know we go back because we want to have the girls experience life in the uk um and uh but you know for now you know i i feel like the you know this is still today maybe maybe becoming less and less so but still the center of the universe for venture and still the place where i can learn my craft better than than anywhere else and i think you know the argument would be that at some point you know i could go back to the uk and kind of you know practice my craft there but um but i think for the time being you know no no plans um your life is, life is pretty good out here, okay. and, I, you know, and I would love to spend more time back in the UK. And I think, well, you know, we're planning on going back again next summer so everybody can meet the, uh, meet the new arrival. But um, I think in, for the next few years, kind of my, my professional life will be, will be here. But who knows? Okay. Who knows?
0: Well, Jeff's not listening, so um, yeah, obviously uh, you would never form a, your own fund. That's the other question I shouldn't ask, really, should I? Would you ever form a fund? I mean, being an angel, serious question, I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I, so when, when I first was interviewing with Jeff to join the team here, one of his first questions was like, you know, you've got a great angel track record. Why not? You know, why not start your own your own fund and my honest answer was you know I have no idea how to be a VC and being a VC is very different to being an angel investor you know when you're taking board seats and you're writing term sheets and taking the lead you know that's very different from chucking in 25 or 50k here or there Um, and that you know if I'm if I'm going to be a great VC and I would love to be a great VC at some point you have to learn from people this is still very much a an apprenticeship type craft where you learn from surrounding yourself by by fantastic investors and kind of seeing how they they do things and you know i I don't think there's there's any kind of one path to becoming a a great dc and i think there are lots of ways and you know people operate in different ways but i think the more you see the better you can become whilst you know still trying to stay kind of true and authentic to yourself as well um but you know maybe down the line why not who knows um
0: cool well we'll we'll watch this space with great (laughs) keenness, andy can i just say thank you very much for your time and just on a personal note it was really great meeting you back in 2007 and watching your growth from afar as i was and uh congratulations to both what you did with huddle but obviously what you're doing now with Encore capital it's been amazing well done
1: Thanks, thanks sam i appreciate that
0: take care we'll see uh we'll see you all next week speak to you soon thank you Sam, that show was amazing. To listen again, please visit our website, marlofm.co.uk or visit our Facebook group, Sam Talks Technology. And now you can subscribe on iTunes. Never miss a show again. See you next week, same time, same place.